the paradox of rationality. Just a few steps from William Shakespeare's birthplace, you'll find a bronze statue of the jester touchstone from As You Like It. Inscribed into stone plinth beneath are lines from various Shakespearean plays. O noble fool, O worthy fool, from As You Like It. The fool doth think he's wise, but a wise man knows himself to be a fool, also from As You Like It. Foolery, sir, doth walk about the orb like the sun. It shines everywhere. Twelfth night. What these express is something that we kind of all know. At the heart of our faith in reason and rationality lies a fundamental paradox. We're not as rational in thought and action as we think we are or we'd like to be. Within academia, the insights of behavioral psychology have determined that we're predictably irrational. We want to think of ourselves as having godlike qualities of all-knowing wisdom and insight, yet we actually have feet of clay. We're often misled by our intuition, our emotion, prejudice, our unthinking habits. So what rational thought and action can deliver is often not as great as we think or we would like. Behavioral theories of the firm have established that we all have what they term bounded rationality. We get caught up in blinkered, chaotic, messy, and often ineffective decision-making processes. So what implication does this have for us in practice? Well, it would be stupid of us to ignore how stupid we are. It would be idiotic to expect that we won't at times like, act like idiots. It would be foolish to think that our foolish antics will guarantee success. The management guru Tom Peters recounted an employee's response to their manager's complaint about their incompetence and resistance. Well, if you're so smart, why didn't you realize that we were so stupid? These insights actually undermine our exaggerated myth of organizations and how they change as the operation of rational systems in the strategic pursuit of their goals. Now, instead of viewing organizations in such mechanical terms, or as organisms, in this subject, we use metaphors better able to capture the ambiguity, chaos, and politics. To illustrate, James March has an image of a ground soccer field, and Rosabeth Moss Cantor has an image of a queen's croquet game. Both provide metaphors that are a nice counter to the overall rational view of organizations. Now, the rational view of organizations presumes clear and distinct goals, that we have agreed and informed means to reach these goals, and capable members dedicated to pursuing the goals and using these best means. This is akin to the traditional view of a soccer field. There are two goals, two teams, one ball, one referee, and commonly understood and fixed rules. In reality, however, organizations have multiple ambiguous and competing goals. There are many diverse and contested means to achieve those goals, and managers, employees, and stakeholders' presence and attention shift over time. Why would we expect rationality to emerge from such a process? Now, March advocates using the metaphor of organizations as round soccer fields to capture these conditions. In his round soccer game, there are multiple goals, different balls are thrown into and removed from the game, 
shifting numbers of players enter into and leave the game, and individuals kick whatever ball comes near them in the direction of a goal they like. If we extend the image further, we can include multiple referees, a slope playing fields that may itself alter during the game, and shifting rules. As one manager commented in the large minerals company that I worked with, the goalposts move so often they ought to have wheels on them. To define what occurs during this process as one best way strategic rationality, or to expect such a thing to emerge from the process, is actually naive and unrealistic. To capture the effects of changing conditions on this process, Rosabeth Moss-Cantor supplements this imagery with another engaging metaphor, this time the Queen's Croquet game in Alice in Wonderland. In the game, the flamingo mallets keep moving their heads, the hedgehog balls frequently unravel and move elsewhere, the hoops made up by card soldiers regularly reposition themselves on the orders of a queen who changes the structure of the game at whim. It illustrates the disruption of previous forms of thought and action by shifts in technology, the flamingos, products and preferences, the hedgehogs, goals and conditions, card soldiers and the whims of the queen. So in change, keeping your eye on the ball is not enough. There needs to be ongoing attentiveness and adaptation to all the changes in the game itself. Now we're going to address what we call big R and little r rationality. A rational appreciation of these conditions doesn't remove the fundamental tensions. We've inherited two overlapping yet competing views of what it means to be rational. These are always at odds with each other and we live with the tensions these create. The first big R rationality is the grandiose view of rationality and what it can do for us. It proclaims logic, evidence, and systematic reflection will provide us with certain knowledge about the world, about ourselves, and how we should think and act. It tells us what we should pursue and how we should pursue it. It identifies the one best way of thought and action. It's a view of rationality that's comprehensive, omniscient, and strategic. Now, modern society is grounded in a rational view of progress based on such a belief in the benefits and ability of science, technology, and growth to provide authoritative and desirable solutions to any of the problems that it creates. While big R rationality challenges pre-modern religion and superstition, it actually simply replaces it with another. It's an uncritical, unreflective, and authoritarian view of reason mm -hmm. and rationality. It finds expression in scientific authorities pronouncing on the truth of their conventional wisdom. It's reflected in bureaucracies taking their rationally determined rules as inviolable and organizations proclaiming the strategic rationality of their arrangements and endeavors. It's a seductive faith as it provides us with certainty, meaning and purpose. As individuals, we often relapse into this view when we assume or defend the rightness of our perspectives and causes. Have you ever found yourself slightly doubting your own particular argument, but finding yourself reasserting it strongly at the same time? In contrast, we've also inherited what could be described as a little r view of rationality. The little r view is more reflective, critical, and limited or bounded in its view of rationality and what it can do for us. While big R rationality gives us authoritarian 
authority and solutions, little r rationality uses logic and evidence to challenge and question any authoritarian claims of unique access to truth and virtue. Little r rationality is more open, liberal, and self-critical. It's pragmatic, tolerant, and more sympathetic to craft skills, professional judgment, and reflective practice. One of the main concerns of little r rationality is the danger of those who just uncritically accept an authoritarian big R rationality as yet another religion, without realizing that what it is to be rational is to use logic and evidence in ways that challenge all unjustified opinions, and is actually reflective about the limitations of its own abilities. As a rational version of the optimism bias, the religion of big R rationality motivates us. It assumes that if we think and act rationally, we will succeed. We're encouraged by the ideas we have or will uncover and deliver the one best way. In the face of a round soccer field or a Queen's croquet game, big R rationality simply seeks to eliminate the mess and impose strategic order. This ethos is profoundly tempting. However, as advocates of little r rationality reveal, there's little logic and limited evidence to support the view that this is likely to succeed. Strategies and claims based on big R rationality mislead us into exaggerating what we can do and misunderstand or cover up what is actually going on. Little r rationality, in contrast, advocates working with rather than against predictable and unpredictable irrationalities in ourselves and in our organizations. Yet because little r rationality fails to provide us with clear guidelines and a new certainty, it can be very discomforting. It creates what Popper characterizes as a strain of civilization. Now, if a new certainty does not give us new confidence, what value does it have? If it can't show us how to act, how are we to find meaning in our pursuit of rational thought and action? Not surprisingly, as individuals and organizations, we often flip-flop or seesaw between these alternative versions in different contexts. Given this understanding then, how should we handle the tension? The first way is by splitting. At different times, for example, in the old and new eras and in different contexts, for example, in more or less uncertain conditions, the ideas and actions of either a one best way, big R rationality, or a little r rationality may better align or suit. Big r rationality provides us with certainty when conditions are stable and uncontested. Little r rationality is useful in conditions of uncertainty and disagreement when we are acting on the edge of chaos. A second strategy is synthesis. It's possible to view the recommendations for what he terms strategic ambiguity by Eric Eisenberg as advocating a novel synthesis. He supports a general commitment to a broad strategic big R rationality that's deliberately vague in order to create the space for us to have little r discussions on how people interpret, approach, and implement what we're all seeking in common. The third strategy is living with and working through. Now, Michael Tushman and his colleagues provided classic examples of attempts to live with this tension in organizations in their analysis of what they term ambidextrous organizations and leaders. They advocate creating cultures and developing leaders 
who can accept and seek to creatively handle tensions between more exploitative and more exploratory forms of innovation. Similar strategies and capabilities are addressed in discussions of the simultaneous handling of sustaining and disruptive innovation. Following their lead, we might advocate and explore a more ambidextrous approach to change. This could involve creating structures and cultures able to cope with the tensions of separating and integrating two strategies during our change. These include competent and strategically rational big R strategies for public consumption. These will legitimate and motivate and provide direction. But also, we can have self-critical, experimental, exploratory and reflective little R strategies, adapting ourselves to situations in practice and getting things done. So in summary, in this podcast, you've learned three things. Firstly, we're not as rational in thought and action as we think we are or we would like to be. As individuals and institutions, we live with this tension. Secondly, we may seek to resolve this tension by identifying how rationality can deliver more in some situations than others, or by creatively combining faith in its general value with skepticism about its value in determining details. And thirdly, you've learned that we may acknowledge the inevitability of the tension and work through it. This involves respecting and supporting ongoing movement between more fixed authoritative and more open critical forms of rational thought and action.